got a lot to say about the world I occupy every day. But when I say what's on my mind, I find I piss people off. You're listening to What the Folk, real talk and raw tunes for revelationary times. I'm Emily Yates. And I'm Sarah Baranowskis. We are joined today by Dr. Tracy Farrell. Tracy Farrell is on the faculty of the Program for Writing and Rhetoric at the University of Colorado Boulder. Her research and teaching interests include Latin American literature and culture, Mexico and U.S. border issues, immigration and drug policy. She's also the author of Migrating for Medical Marijuana, Pioneers in a New Frontier of Treatment. I started hearing the stories and that was it. I was like, no, forget the rest of the book. This is the book. There are so many reasons why cannabis should be legal, but this is the one like nobody can argue with. Keep listening for even more very good points from Dr. Tracy Farrell. But first, if What the Folk has been floating your personal boat, there are a whole bunch of fun ways to let us know. You can subscribe to us on your favorite streaming place. You can follow us on social media at What the Folk Pod. You can give us all the ratings, stars, wherever those happen. You can tell all your friends about us. And I believe we also accept fan fiction as a form of appreciation. Either way, we love you too. Thank you so much for listening. We're calling this episode Building Unions and Busting Borders. Here's a taste of a tune called The Bastille by The Red Tack to start us off. This is the first night with you alone Crying through the window with your radio on This is the story of a Johnny Rotten Tracy Farrell. Thanks for joining us on the pod today. Thank you. Yeah. Well, first, I, since I haven't seen you in a while, how's your apocalypse going? <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's going as well as anyone's, I suppose. You know, I haven't gotten COVID yet, despite having had to teach on campus. And um, my teaching online now, I'm teaching online and it's going okay. My My cat put her butt in the camera yesterday for all my students to see just boom right up there so that was that's how online teaching is going (laughs) (laughs) but um you know just taking it day to day and uh like I think most people are right now yeah what is the situation like on campus um are you returning to campus or is your class online for the rest of the semester I am not returning to campus but some classes I guess for faculty that did not make the request are having to go back. Um, So I haven't been on campus now for since before the temporary uh, move to 
off campus and so or online. And so it's been about two weeks since I've been on campus. But um, yeah, it was pretty weird and not great. But um, and that's why I requested to stay uh, online for the rest of the year for a variety of reasons. Many of my students have already gone home um, and wouldn't be able to return anyway. And so we were told that if students didn't want to do um, in-person classes, that they would need um, that they we would need to zoom them in or somehow create a hybrid class so that they could be part of the class. So essentially designing another set of new classes right now in the middle of the semester. Some of my classrooms didn't even allow for Zoom, like they weren't set up for that. So um, like one of my classes was uh, is the uh, theater in Old Main. Um, so it's not set up with tech at all, basically just some very basic cobbled together stuff. So um, I don't even know how I would have taught that class hybrid. So I made the argument that I just wanted to stay online. It's much easier for everybody involved. Yeah. So what do you think about how CU's handled everything? Yeah. Like, do you feel (laughs) safe? It's it's a disaster. Everybody knows it's a disaster. I think there's not one person who doesn't know that it's been a full on disaster. And we all saw it coming. I mean, there was a petition circulated over the summer with about 145 faculty signatures asking the university to just go online for the semester, um, knowing that there was no way that this was going to be a productive, healthy, safe semester if we tried to bring 30,000 students back to town. But of course, that didn't really matter (laughs) what the faculty wanted. So yeah, it's been terrible. I mean, I understand why they need to do it. Um, Public education in particular is in terrible situation, has been for years. We don't have enough funding. Our operating costs are almost fully funded by tuition. So, and then having students living in dorms and those sorts of things. So not having that money would have meant more layoffs than they've already had to do and more cuts than they've already had to do. So I do understand that they were between a rock and a hard place, but I think that the cuts should have come somewhere else and they should have made, somehow made it happen that we could have classes online. And I think that most students would have still returned. And I, because basically I think they've shot themselves in the foot. They got most students back this semester and then they jerked them around for two months and have treated them horribly. And now how many students are going to come back in the spring? How many are going to, you know, transfer to another university where they're not going to be treated as simply dollar signs with no concern for their health or for their education, basically? I mean, I feel terribly for my especially for sheer students like listening to what they've had to go through I mean going to college in a pandemic you first time away from home for many of them many of them very far from home from the east coast or California they go to the dorms they have all these really strict restrictions of what they can do many of them only had one in-person class anyway we were two weeks in and they put on lockdown and they couldn't even leave their dorms. And then a bunch of them are getting COVID and they're getting stuck in quarantine or their roommates have COVID and they don't know where to get tested. So, you know, I, I, I kind of felt like after the AIDS epidemic uh, 
hit its sort of peak in the 80s, we learned that you don't blame people for being a disease, but I felt like students didn't even want to say if they got COVID because then it was like, well, were you out partying? Were you breaking the rules? Why do you have, you know, just the shaming of the students then pushing it all on the students. It's just, it's, it's horrible. Honestly, it was the administration's decision to bring students back, to say it was safe, just say campus was safe while they sat in their little remote offices somewhere, (laughs) having little Zoom meetings like this and sending everybody else out onto the front lines and refusing to give hazard pay to those who were cleaning the dorms and doing all the sanitation work. And it's been the most aggravating semester of my life. I'm so frustrated with the university. And I, I mean, I've worked at CU for over 16 years, and I got my degree there. So, I mean, I'm well aware of the way the university works, but this just is above and beyond as far as lack of concern for employees and students. It's just beyond. The thing that was coming to mind, though, as you're as you're talking about this and describing this response, um, especially the the victim blaming, it's like, it really just sounds like a microcosm of our entire system uh, that, you know, which obviously you're intimately acquainted with having done as the, the kind of research that you have um, and all the intersections between like the drunk war and immigration policy and all of that. I mean, it's, it's a very similar, like we're going to create the problem and then we're going to blame you for suffering from it. And then we're going to restrict your access to any kind of solution. And we're still going to expect you to keep doing your quote unquote part for the system. It's all quite dark and terrifying. (laughs) Absolutely. And I mean, I have done my best to speak out against what's been happening throughout this, but the university has a fabulously well-oiled <laughs> machine for getting its messages out there as well. The, there is sort of, because it's such a huge bureaucracy, it's very, very difficult to sort of get people together to, you know, talk about what's happening. Um, I mean, I've done a lot of it through the union, but um, very few people are actually involved in the union at this point. And then that leaves out students, of course, and we do want to have students input into what's happening. And again, it all comes down to money. And I, I do understand that they they had hard choices to make. It's kind of like the the public schools going back. You know, there's people that are so angry that they're bringing students back part-time. And then there's other people that are so angry that they didn't have students back full-time from the start of the semester. And, and I mean, there's there's a whole spectrum of people t- that, you know, are involved and they have very, very different ideas on what needs to happen. So I still think that there were better decisions that could have been made. And that's why they get paid the big bucks. I mean, <laughs> these folks are making, you know, four or $500,000 a year. Um, and... Yeah, come up with something better than we're going to bring all the students back. Yeah, and give everybody a 5% pay cut, except the very lowest paid employees. And then also, mm-hmm. you know, furlough, a you know, huge amount of employees as well. Yeah, you know, and then those higher paid employees getting the 10% 
pay cut, which, you know, when you're making a million dollars, I'm very sorry for you, but <laughs> you yeah. don't get a new Audi um, <laughs> next year. Okay. Union was pushing for pay cuts that were primarily at the upper end of the pay spectrum and that would be um, not just a 5% and 10%, but an actual, you know, gradation of cuts because obviously 10% cut of one of these big earners is saving them much more than a 5% cut of a bunch of people making at the low end of the, it just, it makes, it makes no sense. And, and then, you know, there's the whole athletics thing. <laughs> oh God. I didn't even have any questions about that. We could talk about that too. <laughs> I don't kind of don't want to go there, but like the fact that they started playing football games when they still weren't having in-person classes should tell you a little bit about the value system of the university, right? right. You know, the library's closed. Right. Everything else is closed down, but the football team is still playing. Our amazing football team. Yeah, right. I think kind of like what you were saying, Emily, it just reveals to a lot of people, you know, what COVID has done all over the country, which is just to reveal incredible inequities and a broken system or a system that's functioning the way it's supposed to, which is keep people down, but a system that's broken for the for the people at the bottom and even in the middle. And like you said, the university is a microcosm of that, right? And we did, we got, I'm sure, you know, 58% cut to our state funding, which isn't that much to begin with. <laughs> you know, clearly there were, there were hard decisions that had to be made. And, and it, it's frustrating that we aren't getting more help from governmental entities to help the university pull itself out, that the university is forced to. Like they, they keep pushing it down the line. They push it all the way down to the departmental level. Figure out how you're going to cut this much from your budget, right? You know, you have to figure out how you're going to cut 10% from your budget rather than, you know, helping us out since we are a, a public institution, right? I mean, where's the government to bail out education? I often think people that don't work in higher ed are sometimes not aware of how much of it is a microcosm of all the social problems, even like the class system and the way labor is distributed. Which brings me to my next question. I really wanted to talk about um, your work with the union and it's kind of unionizing in higher ed and why that's important right now, especially. Cool. So yeah, I've been trying to get a union going for years. And every time I bring it up to other faculty, they'd be like, oh, we can't start a union. Like they'll just fire us or, you know, it's illegal. Like, I mean, Reagan, of course, you know, people my age were all growing up in, in sort of like Reaganomics and the destruction of unions and not only legally and politically, but people really developing an, a negative uh, opinion towards unions. Um, and so I think that's really hard to fight against. And then the grad students came along and they're young and they don't remember Reagan. <laughs> Socialism is not a bad word to them. So yay for the younger generation. And so they started a union. Woohoo! And um, as you guys probably know, was really very successful last year, had many um, before the pandemic hit, had a whole lot of great um, actions to get their fees um, dropped and to get other um, to get health care coverage and things like that. Um, since grad student workers are probably the some of the most um, 
egregiously treated at the university. That and our housing and uh, dining staff are also mm-hmm. pretty badly treated. You know, the pan- somewhere around the beginning of the pandemic, they were able to open up the union to all faculty and uh, non-classified staff at the universities. That was great, but because it happened to just coincide with the pandemic, nobody knew about it. So the union has not been able to grow at the rate it should be because of being kind of overshadowed by the pandemic. Um, it was right about the time that campus closed down, it was right after it announced that it was opening to everybody. So I've been trying my best, even though we're not on campus and um, it's a little bit tougher these days, report to people that um, it is open to. And it's not just CU Boulder, it's all of the University of Colorado system and that it's open to everybody except classified staff. Right now, it's I would say the union's primarily still graduate students are there. They're, if you look at the steering committee, it's primarily graduate students because they were the ones that ran on the ground floor. And um, it's still, it seems like it's a little bit harder, like sort of the further up the ladder you get, it's harder to get people to join. Yeah. Um, which is interesting because they have more job security. So you think they would be more willing, you know, if you're a tenure, tenure track faculty, you might be more willing to join. But um, mm-hmm. <laughs> so we're trying to get, um, and so we have an organizing committee and we're trying to work on organizing, particularly faculty. And then there's another group that's working on international um, employees and then uh, and students. Um, and we are also open to undergraduate student employees as well. Um, as you guys probably know, the RAs have had a really tough time of things um, since the start of the semester, where they have been repeatedly exposed to coronavirus, coronavirus uh, positive students being sent back to um, the dorms, and RAs are required to go around and do checks throughout the dorms, and so they're like going in and out of bathrooms and touching doors and. Um, they weren't given any PPE until about three weeks into the semester. And then um, now apparently they're running out of PPE again. And then, as you guys probably know, when they ran out of space in the um, quarantine dorms, everyone said, oh, when they run out of space in the quarantine dorms, they'll definitely shut things down. No, they just kicked all the kids out of a dorm and made that a quarantine dorm. Um, and so now there was like quarantine people living in the same building as non-quarantine people and kids had like two days to get out of their rooms. Um, and that was the same for the RAs that were working there. So they've actually lost something like 35 RAs have quit. So they're, they're now the RAs that are remaining are doing like double the amount of work. So it's, yeah, it's at all levels. It's undergraduate employees, it's grad employees, it's across the board. And, you know, we, the union has been fighting. One of our demands was for um, hazard pay for anyone who has to work um, directly with students like that. So people cleaning the dorms, dining staff, RAs, um, they just won't budge on it at all. Um, so we need more people in the union because more people means more power. And um, but we're already more powerful than we were last year because last year they weren't even able to get meetings with some of these folks. And now um, the union is calling meetings with 
you know, the COO, Patrick O'Rourke and Russ Moore and um, Chancellor Stefano. I mean, they actually will hold meetings with us. We have enough like membership and clout now. So we don't get our demands met, <laughs> but at least we're out there talking to them. It's basically what we're what we're seeing in our larger system playing out, like this lack of um, care for human life and a prioritization of profit and, you know, the fact that there has to be a union to demand humane treatment of human beings who are doing, you know, a, an extremely valuable job and getting paid less than the people who are currently making their full pay uh, to work safely from home. And I mean, it's, it's just, it just shows how sociopathic our whole system is. And it's to me kind of terrifying. I don't know how, how you're coping with it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you know, my husband is from New Zealand and everybody looks at New Zealand as sort of the, uh, you know, oh, there's a country that handled it correctly. And part of it is just because they have a social safety net. And so they're able to shut things down and ask people to stay home and and do people can do it, right? Exactly. You know, they're not going to lose their homes. They're not going to lose their jobs. They're not going to, um, you know, there's, there's always going to be support there for them, whereas, you know, and, and healthcare is not going to be an issue if they do get sick. Um, we don't have any of that. So right. yeah, the university had to open because if we didn't open, we would have been in a $45 million shortfall. And then they would have ended up laying off the most vulnerable um, staff in that position, you know, like, the people cleaning the dorms. If they didn't bring students back to the dorms, they can't keep the, that staff on. If they don't bring mm-hmm. students back on campus, they are not going to keep. And, and and there should be a safety net exactly. in place for those people. So we can shut it down for a semester and they can still pay them. Mm-hmm. And the money exists. That's the whole thing is that, you know, we, we can see very clearly that the money exists. It's just who's getting it. We can see that, um, you know, the banks are getting it. The hotels are getting it. The military is getting it. Um, the weapons contractors are getting it. The money is going to the people who are doing the most harm and the least good. And it's it's very clearly intentionally set up that way. And I I feel like when you're looking at it on your, from your level, not just from the university level, but from the kind of specific work and research that you do, you can really see very clearly how that's, how that, that misanthropic um, approach to government is playing out. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. And I mean, yeah, it's about how we allocate money and the choices we were given were, if we don't bring students back to campus, we're going to be laying off, you know, 2000 staff. The, the, The choice wasn't, well, we can move everything online and then we can just suspend athletics for two years and use that money to pay the people that are <laughs> that would have been working on campus, right? Because that's millions and millions of dollars. And each coach and assistant and assistant coach makes way more than anyone else at the university. 
right? I mean, that's in when you look at uh, public um, employees, football coaches across the country are the highest paid public employees at, at state colleges. And yet that was never, I mean, it was like the sacred gal. We can't, we can't say, oh, let's, you know, let's just get rid of football while we're in this emergency situation. And that'll free up all this money that can help us run things while we, you know, are online or remote or however we have to do things. Just like on the larger scale, it's the people that have the money are pitting the people that don't. <laughs> right or that don't have as much or don't have as much power against one another so like the number one thing I heard when they wanted to move all the classes online students and parents saying well we want a refund we want our money back or part of our money back if we're going to have classes online um, which is weird in, in and of itself because what are you selling at a university I guess you're selling knowledge, right? So do we have to be in the same place for me to give my expertise on something to my students? Um, and, you know, I told my students when they were asking me this, I said, first of all, you're going to get the same education. I'm going to make sure you get the same education that you would have gotten had we been in class. It's not going to be as much fun because we don't get to be together. And, you know, everybody likes being around other, well, most people like being around other people. Um, and there's a dynamic in a classroom that you can't get on Zoom, right? But I said, I'm going to do my best to give you the same education. You'll come out, you'll have learned the same things. And when you talk about, you know, getting a tuition cut, where do you think that comes out of? I mean, professors still have to get paid and we're doing more work now than what we were doing to, to teach in person, right? Because we have to completely redesign our whole methodology. So, but they don't think about that, right? It's just like, you know, and so this whole idea of, you know, education as a business. And, and that's another thing in a place like New Zealand, universities free. So they can say, okay, well, you know what, we're just going to go remote for a year and people aren't going to complain because they're not paying for it. Right? But yeah, you're, you're really, um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, when we look at the ways that education is treated in this country and the way pretty much anything that's good for people is treated in this country. It's completely devalued. And, um, you know, yeah, people shouldn't be in a position to want to ask for their money back for college because that should be funded by their taxes. And the money exists to do that. And we've just chosen, um, our government has chosen to not, to not even allow us to to have any say in how much of our taxes go toward our education versus our um, foreign, our, our department of offense, as I call it. <laughs> it's like a pie in the sky idea to even consider that. Like, it's blasphemous. Right? Should that be so pie in the sky? I yeah. mean, it's just nuts, right? I know. I think that's why our local schools didn't go back in person. Um, neither of our local school districts did. Um, and they were able to make that decision precisely because they could make a decision based on what was best for the health of their employees and the students and not based on losing money, right? Um, mm -hmm. 
And now they are bringing them back slowly because everybody knows that it is best for kids to be in school. And, but they're doing it in a much more thoughtful way. And they allowed any teacher that wanted to, to opt out of teaching in person. So they're not forcing anybody to be in an in-person environment, which is one of the worst things that CU did was not allowing faculty to make that decision for themselves. Um, And so what ended up happening was graduate student teachers and adjuncts and people that had much less job security ended up being the ones doing most of the um, in-person teaching. Because if you were tenured, you could, you know, you're only teaching like one class a year anyway. And you're like, oh, I'll just teach from home and they let you do it. It's unfortunate. I mean, I think that one of the primary reasons Boulder schools didn't go back is because 300 teachers said they didn't want to go back. And so they didn't have enough teachers. Mm. And so I guess that's why CU wouldn't let us make that decision, because if we would have all said we don't want to go back, then... It's how you build that power and solidarity of labor across, you know, the sort of class lines that exist in higher ed. And that's one thing that's really interesting to me about how the unions opened up now to pretty much everybody except classified because they have a separate union being with the state. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, do you have any thoughts about that? Sort of how do you build that solidarity across those hierarchies that exist in higher ed? I think it's really tough because I think that the hierarchies in higher ed are worse than another. It's so medieval, right? Um, this, this caste system where you have to jump through hoops, you know, to get to the next level. And then uh, once people get to that level, then they're, they, they don't want to change the system. They're like, well, I've jumped through the hoops. Other people can jump through the hoops too. You know, it's, it's also, it's a sexist system. It's a racist system. It's a system that's based on um, giving more value to research over teaching. Teaching is seen as st- still women's work, right? It's like <laughs> devalued compared to the hard research that's happening. But so is librarianship. And, and then, you know, and then also there's the division between, you know, the, the colleges, right? And what's valued and science and engineering clearly have more value than art or languages or, and you can look at the salaries differentials, right? And see that that's, so I think it's really, really, really hard place to create solidarity. Fortunately, um, people that go into academia tend to be fairly progressive, like overall. So, um, we do have a, a quite a few tenured and tenure track faculty that have joined the union and are really um, clear about trying to um, lend their voices to the cause for people who have far fewer rights. And it goes like all the way along, right? Because I'm an instructor, so I'm non-tenure track, but I still have a lot more um job security than someone who's an adjunct or someone who's a cleaner who's making minimum wage. It's it's tough, but I, I mean, I think we can do it. And one of the ways we're working on it is um, rather than trying to get like a majority of people in the whole system is trying to work in very like specific places. So I'm working in my program because we are the program with the largest amount of non-tenure track faculty. So we have the largest amount of contingent and non-tenure track faculty. We actually have no tenure track faculty in our in our faculty that aren't housed somewhere else. So that if we could get a majority of people within one program, especially a program like rating, which is uh, 
a core program, like they're not going to cut writing, like, or if they do, we're in big trouble if, that's, if it gets that far. <laughs> so, you know, we, in that sense, we have like a little bit more bargaining power. Like we teach core classes. We are, you know, a large faculty. So if we can get, and so that is one of the strategies is to get majorities in different programs throughout the university, rather than trying to get a majority everywhere because like a majority in something like ethnic studies is not really that helpful because ethnic studies is a vulnerable population when they start to go and cut programs right they always go for things like asian studies or you know ethnic studies or these sort of outlying programs but if we can get majorities in math or writing or these very like basic programs that's a little bit more helpful because you can shut down core classes so that's one of the ways, but the big challenge is the like dining, housing staff, cleaning staff, grounds, pulling them in is a big challenge. Why is that a challenge? I think they're very afraid of being associated with the union and what that means for their job security. They have a lot of uh, skin in that game If, as far as if they lose their job or are unable to get a reference for their next job. They don't have, because there isn't a safety net, that's the catch-22, right? They can't lobby for one because there isn't one. And one of the things that CU does is they, I mean, which is good, is that they hire people who don't speak English, which is great because you're trying to learn English and you can get a job at CU and it's you know, a full-time job and you have benefits, it's minimum wage, but that also makes you more vulnerable too, right? Because you're like, oh, I can't lose this job because I don't speak English. And then where am I going to get a job? Like nobody's going to hire me, but we do have Spanish. I speak Spanish. We have Spanish speaking folks that are organizing for the union and we have several key um, contacts throughout. So we're trying to work through them. You know, it's finding people that are um, that, you know, are um, sort of with your cause, right, (laughs) stand with you rather than just kind of throwing it out there. There's a lot of uh, Stockholm syndrome in academia. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) that's what I found. Uh, Well, and again, a microcosm of the nation, I feel like pretty much anybody who identifies as a patriot these days has some kind of Stockholm syndrome. Because this this nation, this government has been abusing us for most of us for our entire lives and our parents and grandparents and ancestors' lives. And uh, and we're you know, we're looking at it as like save us, save us from from you. <laughs> it's kind of ridiculous. Like when I first started speaking out, when I first went back to campus. I don't know if you saw the video, Sarah, but I made a a video, like I went around and made a video in my classroom to show like what the situation was. And then it was posted on um, the union site and then they sent it to a bunch of media because I was just so furious, like that I was sent back and I had to teach in these situations and there was nothing that I needed to teach was there. There were no no, there was no ventilation. There were, there were no sanitary wipes or things to clean stuff down. All the hand sanitation, um, things were empty and, you know, they they were like, Oh, but we're testing, we're testing. But of course they were only testing on campus, which is like less than 20% of students. They weren't testing faculty staff. And so I was like going to the media with this. I was so livid. And so many faculty I know said, 
I think the university is doing a good job. They wouldn't send us back if it wasn't safe. Like I trust that they're making it safe for us. (laughs) And I just thought, really? (laughs) Like you think that this decision was made based on that, that it was safe? Um, You know, the contact tracing didn't even include the classrooms. So students in my classes were coming down with COVID and I wouldn't hear anything from the university. Like I would have to hear it from a student. And then when I would contact my department and tell them like, I've got this many students with COVID in my classroom. Like, well, we haven't gotten any information about that. I'm like, well, I don't think they're making it up. Like like nobody had the accounts nobody knew like, and then it exploded so much that they couldn't keep wraps on it anymore. Kind of like in the U S as a whole, right? Like, Oh, we can't pretend it's going okay anymore because now there's like thousands of people, but yeah, the amount of like pushback from particularly older faculty. And I don't want to be ageist, but maybe the longer you spend in the institution, the the stronger the The Kool-Aid is. Yeah. You lose your humanity. Oh, believe that this is safe. Oh yeah, it's. I think it's a really interesting thing to see how many people really will trust the word of the higher authority, as though the higher authority is actually somehow um, higher moraled than anybody else they know. <laughs> you know, it's like the the place where I come to is like you should not actually trust anybody who is making more money than you are off of your labor. You know, you can see it from the inside of academia as I saw it from the inside of the military, for example, um, that the system doesn't care about us. We have to care about ourselves more than the system cares about us because as far as it's concerned, you know, we're kind of worth more dead than alive in many ways. And the system doesn't care about the students either. Right. I mean, the students are just dollar signs in seats, you know, and that's that's actually how they talk about them. Yeah. Uh, credit, like, do, do you know about this, Sarah? This, uh, you know, when uh, bodies in seats, I think, is is the uh, is the terminology. Like, that's like how much funding your um, program or department gets is like bodies in seats. That sounds like boots on the ground. I was a boots on the ground. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, So it's like, even though we exist for the students, uh, they in some ways are the least like (laughs) important to the system. Right. Mm -hmm. And then the faculty who are like the second most important to the system. Right. (laughs) Like no students, no faculty, no university. Right. But we're the ones that are, you know, the first sort of casualties when it comes to um, any kind of cuts or anything that's going to happen. And so it's it's always interesting because I feel like the libraries is sort of downstream what happens in the academic departments. So education is important. I mean, and we need good people in education, right? We don't want to just give it over to the people that just see the dollar signs, bodies, and seats, we, we want, you know, and, and I mean, unfortunately, I think that the system does like, um, sort of exploit that with all teachers, actually, that, (laughs) you know, you want to do good for your students, so you will be more exploitable 
it's a, it's a calling. Well, it's not a, it's not a job. It's a calling. So then you feel guilty if you're not doing the most you can for your students at all times, even if they're not paying you for that or so. And I think all levels of education, like teachers. Sure. Sure. System isn't broken, it's working just the way it was designed. It's meant to make you feel like you're losing your mind. The system isn't damaged, it's working just the way it was programmed. It's if we could spend like a little bit of time on the premise of your book and some of your research around that and what you found and you know what you what you think we should know <laughs> all right cool so um I actually started on this book a while ago now I was teaching I've been teaching a course called the politics of drugs since um right after 9-11 so probably 2002 or 2003 um, I don't know if you guys remember, but right after 9-11, they came out with these anti-drug ads that somehow linked buying drugs with supporting terrorism. Yeah, I totally- and I remember seeing the ad for the first time and I was just like, are you freaking kidding me? I was so angry. And um, I had just started a new position um, in an English department and they wanted me to teach a writing class. It was a writing class that I would be teaching to business students primarily. So I was like, how am I going to make this class interesting? So you can teach about any topic you want. Just try to make it interesting to them because they don't want to be there. And so I thought, I'm going to teach it about drug policy. <laughs> like that, that ad was like, I'm going to yeah. teach about this because, you know, this is crazy. And so that's how I started teaching the course. And then, um, you know, just sort of developed over the years. And I was, I came back to Colorado. I was in Boston then, came back to Colorado and was teaching it here for a long time. And everything was happening with cannabis. So medical was already legal when I came back, but very difficult to get. There wasn't like much set up. And then um, I watched recreational, um, um, getting recreational legalized. And then, um, you know, I'm still teaching this class and I'm like really not much out there for my students to learn about what was happening with cannabis in Colorado. Like there were newspaper articles and magazine articles, but there wasn't anything comprehensive about how has the state changed? What's going on? Like, What's the social situation now that we have become the, you know, first state to legalize 
And so I was like, man, I really wish someone would write that book. And then I was like, hmm. So it started out as being more like, how have things changed socially in Colorado since legalization? And I started doing research. And so the first chapter that I wanted to do was to research families who had moved here with their kids to get uh, treatment with medical cannabis. I started hearing the stories and that was it. I was like, no, forget the rest of the book. This is the book. Like this is, you know, there are so many reasons why cannabis should be legal, but this is the one like nobody can argue with, right? I mean, it's like the medical stuff is just so compelling, right? And you hear so often, like, oh, well, medical, it's just like people just want to get, you know, so they can get high. Like, it's, you know, you know, and, and even at some point, I'm sure, like, I've been talking to people and, and heard, like, well, you know, states that, that pass medical, it's just so that they can eventually pass recreational. It's a medicine, but it's an illicit drug. And so there's, there's just it's so messed up the way people think about cannabis, Mm -hmm. you know, and even in our own um, legalization for rec, they said, well, we're going to treat it like alcohol. Well, you can't treat it like alcohol because alcohol is like a poisonous substance that kills people. Um, And this is a medicine that keeps people alive. Right. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of like in the law and, and, um, and just in the way people think about it, there's there's so much that's messed up. So I decided I would just focus on the medical stuff. And it in overall, my argument is like that it should be descheduled, that it should not be, you know, a scheduled substance whatsoever. Um, so it should be legal for whatever people want to use it for, right? Right. Um, and we can't make that distinction between medical and recreational because most recreational is also medical, right? I mean, you're trying to relax or you're, you know, trying to uh, sleep or just whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. Cope with the apocalypse. (laughs) Yeah, cope with the apocalypse. Actually, yeah. Right. Mental health. So, so yeah, I started doing the research um, and I interviewed over 50 different either parents or people themselves who had moved here or who were not able to move here in order to access cannabis and why and their situation and all that. And then I also um, contacted all the researchers working down at the University of Colorado Children's Hospital, Anschutz. There's several people doing a bunch of different really cool research. And so I talked to them. I talked to a bunch of growers and um, people developing different strains. And I just, through their stories, tried to make the argument about why this needs to be federally descheduled because the state-to-state thing is just a nightmare. Um, people should not be forced to leave their states to get medical care. Um, people should not have their children taken away from them because they're trying to get medical care in their state. People should not have their children taken away from them because they're using marijuana for whatever reason in their state. Like, I think of it more as their stories than my story. It was like getting all their stories and putting them together in such a way that hopefully people would be convinced of why we need to make changes in the law. I guess I think of myself more as a story collector than anything, but um, I'm really fascinated by people's stories 
I love to hear people's stories in my next book, which kind of goes on to, um, which I'm trying to put together a proposal for now, but it's going to be way harder, is I want to um, collect stories of um, undocumented folks who are um, incarcerated in detention centers right now. I was doing visits with people in uh, detention center. We have a a very big detention center here in Colorado in Aurora, just outside of Denver. It's one of the biggest in the country, and it's had multiple human rights abuse issues um, over the years. And so there's a local organization that organizes people to go in and talk with folks in in there. And um, I do speak fluent Spanish, so that's really helpful because a lot of them only speak Spanish mm-hmm. because I, I think it's really, really important that people hear these stories because these are innocent people that are rotting away in jail with terrible human rights conditions and not even the rights that American prisoners have, which are pretty, oh. Yeah, no, you're right. Like they don't even have the rights that uh, that American prisoners have. and I Which aren't I many, right? Yeah. And that's, that to me, along with the fact that it is so hard, their, their stories are being suppressed. Or I find somebody who's a lawyer who has like, because they have the most like unfettered access to um, yeah. in detention and who would just be willing to go in and record stories for me. Um, mm-hmm. I could also have them write their stories. Some of them aren't, can't write though, or, you know, whatever. So that might be tough, but you, they can send letters. So that's an option. Even calling is tough because they have to pay like $3 a minute to call out of the. It's insane. It's a for-profit industry, the criminalization of people just traveling from one place to another, usually to escape conditions that we've caused in their home country. No, it's awful. So I'm not a lawyer. And that was like the number one thing when I went there, people would ask, are you a lawyer? And I would have to tell them, no, can you get me a lawyer? No. Because basically, if you don't have, if you go with your asylum case before a judge and you don't have a lawyer, it's like a 99% chance you're going to not get through. That is um, so inhumane. So, yeah, um, I was like, well, what can I do? It feels like you feel very helpless. Like, I'm just going there and talking to them and trying to make them aware that we know what's going on. Like, you know, there are people out here who care about you. Like, it's, you're, you're not alone, but... Um, so I think maybe just trying to get as many stories out there as I can from these folks would be my next little project. I also teach course about immigration and I have my students go out and work. Well, used to go out and work in the community with immigrant populations, a lot of times teaching English, which is something really useful that my students can do really just as much for them to kind of learn about the immigrant community and see that part of Boulder because you know, Boulder's got that reputation of just being all rich white people. The, when I first started teaching this course, it was called On the Border. And I taught a lot about stuff going on on the border between the U.S. and Mexico. And I really wanted my students to see that the border existed here, too. Yeah. I remember one day I was in a restaurant and like kind of a shishi restaurant in Boulder just sitting there having like wine with a friend, just like jazz playing. There's like, it's all white people. It looks like, I don't know, banana republic or something. (laughs) And then like the door swung open from the kitchen at one point, a waitress came out and this like blast of mariachi music kind of like came out of the kitchen. And I looked back in because I was sitting sort of near there 
And it was like all Latinx folks <laughs> in the kitchen. And I was like, this is what I need my students to see, right? Yeah. Like this border that we, this artificial border that we've created between these two countries also exists in its own way mm-hmm. in our city, right. right? And so when people say, oh, it's just like a rich white town. No, that's what you see, right? Yeah. But this rich white town is like propped up mm-hmm. by immigrant, brown immigrant labor, and they're living in like the trailer parks, like you pass by, you go, you go from Lyons to Boulder, right? Like that huge trailer park up on in North Boulder where the Carniceria is and all the like great, like Spanish mercados and lechosa. Yeah. So that's kind of, I mean, I used to live in Mexico and, and my degree is focused on Latin American literature. And so that's kind of where all these interests sort of dovetail. And the, I would say that the drug stuff also as well, because obviously Latin America and the drug war intricately connected mm-hmm. just the way in which the system oppresses folks for various reasons, whether it's using drugs or trying to find a better life for your kids when you're born on the wrong side, wrong side of the border. That's that stuff. And it's a little bit, like you said, because we're going through like... <laughs> like Emily said, the apocalypse, uh, it's a little bit on hold right now. Like I spend a lot of time just walking my dogs and watching the ravens. <laughs> it's, it's, it's really hard to do any work rate. I mean, even just our, our work work that we get paid for is like tougher. And then to try to do this other stuff has been tough as well. That's why we should just open the borders, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> people always whenever when i say things like that or you see those memes going around it's like i don't want to open the borders i just want better immigration policy and my response is always like why don't you want to open the borders why isn't that the only fair immigration policy the borders are part of that's that's another line that keeps people in their place right that demarcates who deserves and who doesn't deserve mm-hmm. and who's only part of a person and I see a lot of value with the work you do, whether it's with, you know, medical patients or with immigrants and kind of putting a human face on that is really powerful. That's that's what I think the power of story is. And that's kind of where I am in my life and my job right now and just my values. I mean, my whole life has really been about stories in one way or another. And I, mean, I guess all of our lives are to some degree, but then I actually went and got a PhD in that. <laughs> they don't call it that, but that's what it is. <laughs> because stories are, one, they're how we make meaning out of our life, right? But two, they're, they're how we empathize with other people. That's how we see other people's humanity. And, you know, so I'm teaching my students how to tell their stories, but I'm also teaching them how to read and listen to other people's stories. And I think that that's really important. I saw that there was like, as a librarian, you'll appreciate this, Sarah, there was like a study that came out, you probably saw it, that the more people read, the more, the higher they score on empathy tests. Oh, I don't know if I did see that, but I do like, I like that. I like everything about that. (laughs) Yeah, and it makes sense, right? Because reading is about putting yourself in somebody else's shoes, right? Whether you're, whether you're reading, you know, I mean, unless you're reading a textbook, but you know, like whether you're reading like a memoir, nonfiction or fiction, whatever it is, you're learning to sort of see things from a different perspective. So Yeah, I think that's what it all comes down to for me. Like, I think that's kind of my place is to help people tell their stories. 
I hope. And I want to use like, I know I've had a lot of privilege. And so I want to try to use that in a way that to amplify those voices, because they don't like you were saying, Emily, like, these are some of the most suppressed voices, people that are people in prison, for sure. And then people that are in um, detention centers, even more so, right? Did you know they don't even have to have an interpreter for them when they go to court? So that's why if they don't get a lawyer, like they're not going to like they're not going to get through. It is absolutely tragic to see this inhumane treatment of human beings. You know, the way the the nation just makes these decisions on our behalf. And, you know, even I'm even not just this administration, you know, if you've been doing this work a long time, I, I clearly and you know that the Obama administration perpetuated its fair share of atrocities against migrants. Yeah, it's I mean, to, to kind of go full circle back to the whole academia thing, mm-hmm. it's that whole and it being a microcosm, that whole structure and I have, you know, talked to so many, and I used to be tenure track. I left the tenure track. I've talked to so many people who are tenured and they say, yeah, we need to, we need to really improve the, um, you know, position of adjuncts and, and lectures and da, 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 da. I'm like, no, we need to get rid of tenure. And, oh man, when you tell people that have fought to get to that place, like, and, and I said, we cannot have justice by just saying let's raise some of these people up mm-hmm. if we still have all of these levels right I mean you can't have if all of a sudden without the under underclass you can't have the tenure class like, tenure means nothing if we raise up everybody who's not tenure right so people don't get that right like it's like we have to have the underclass in order to have this upper class and it and they don't they want to somehow just talk about let's like raise you know let's let's raise everybody up but without doing anything with this these people up here and that can't happen right I mean you say the same thing in librarianship a lot because we are very white um and then there'll be these conversations about how we need to decenter whiteness in librarianship and it's like how about getting rid of needing an MLIS to be a librarian? Mm-hmm. Maybe if it didn't cost, you know, fifty dollars to $80,000 to get your master's degree in library science, we'd have a more diverse profession. Just a thought. But no mm-hmm. one wants that. It's similar to the tenure track thing. Right. And, and, and the argument is, oh, but if we if we lose tenure, we have no academic freedom. And I'm like, eight percent of faculty have tenure. There already is no academic freedom. Right. <laughs> you, right. You, Tiny little percentage of the whole profession has job security and they want to hold on to it. And I'm like, no, you got to just, we got to just get rid of that whole system that goes back to the middle ages. Like mm-hmm. we just need a whole new system. Right? Right. Let's evolve together. <laughs> and that's exactly what you're saying too. I mean, like, it's like, it's like the question when people say, well, do you believe all drugs should be legalized? Yeah. You know, like, like that somehow like blows their mind. All people and substances should be legal. Yeah. And we should definitely, you know, have the ability to keep our communities safe. But there are so many better ways that we can do that that involve not devaluing each other. And unfortunately, our, our current system really, really wants us to devalue each other. And I, I mean, more than anything, it wants that it's, it's, um, you know, 
the way that the, the pandemic has been handled is, is a very clear sign of that. That we're taking some of the most um, vulnerable people in our society and locking them away and taking away their rights. And that, you know, that makes a certain group of people feel better about their own fears of being worthy, right? Mm. That, oh, you know, it's like we have, have to have this like differentiation and... What's one thing that gives you hope right now? Because obviously it's hard to feel that sometimes. I think my students give me hope. I think the younger generation really gives me hope. I have a 14-year-old daughter too. And I mean, these kids are dealing with some crazy shit that we never had to deal with when we were their age. And they look at the world and the system in a really, really different way than we do. And I find hope in that. I think that they are, they see what's going on with Corona and they see what's going on with the government and, with, you know, just everything that's in place right now. And I hope that that means when we come out the other side of this, that we have this new generation of kids coming up that are going to have a different way of thinking about capitalism and of thinking about how we treat other people. And, um, so, yeah, I think it's kind of cliche, but the children are our future. <laughs> no, I feel the same way. I mean, I really, really feel the difference with this generation, even yeah. than the students that I taught even five years ago. Like the kids I have right now, I feel a huge difference in their need for change and their ability to do what they have to to make that happen. And I teach a course on um, resistance movements, and we always start out with a debate over is violence ever justified to change, to make change, to resist? Mm -hmm. Um, And when I started teaching this course, you know, a lot of students would be like, no, no, you know, peaceful, you have to do peaceful protest. And, you know, there'd be a few students that would argue for, for violence sometimes is necessary, but now like, uh-huh. the whole class is like, yeah, if you got a violent, if you need a revolution, you got to get out and appreciate that. They yeah. are realizing like this whole like peaceful sit down and sing a tune hasn't been working. So they're willing to move to do what they need to do, I feel like, or at least be open to it in a way that like previous generations weren't. And they make good arguments for it too, not just go out and fuck shit up. Yeah, <laughs> I think they make big. really good arguments for like life being more important than property. And mm-hmm. um, why are we giving property so much value? And, right. and so to see that coming from like 19 year olds and 20 year olds, I find that really That is really hopeful. The nonviolent argument is always funny because it's like, well, the system itself is perpetuating violence every single day. Right. They argue that as well. Like, right. And I I think that's Angela Davis's thing, right? Like, how can you just continue to respond to violence with, you know? I definitely grew, grew into the understanding of, you know, violence against people um, is is a much bigger deal than destruction of property. Most people believe violence is acceptable in self-defense, and I think it's perfectly logical that what's happening is self-defense. Right? Yeah, at some point, it's survival. What do you say? Like, if someone runs up to you and starts attacking you, you should just, like, lie down and let them. And so systemically, if the system is attacking you, yeah, you're not going to just lay there. Right. Got to fight back. 
That's a super hopeful note to... to <laughs> I think fighting back is a hopeful note. Um, I really, really ap- appreciate all the insight that you have brought into my world, Tracy, and thanks for doing all this work around getting people in academia organized to actually do the work that you that you want to do, which is teach students. <laughs> and well, well, thank you guys. Um, I really appreciate meeting you, Emily thank and you. Sarah. It's good to yeah. see you again. I know it's I... so good to see you. So, well, much love. The system isn't broken. It's working just the way. white man with to the pandemic was just everyone decided to ignore it. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much what's up. And now it's back. That was pretty, well, I mean, that was pretty much what happened. Like, we all knew that was happening this summer. Like, we all saw it happening. Like, I was still being careful, but, like, I was definitely paying attention to the fact that most people weren't. Yeah, even, like, up until recently, walking around Lions. Like, I bring a little mask with me when I go for a walk. Not always when I go for a run, but I have specific times and routes I take where I don't run into people, but, like, um, literally and figuratively. But, like, when I go for a walk, I tend to go through, like, some neighborhoods where there's often people out. Like, nobody was wearing a mask, and people would look weird at you when you put your mask on. I think it's because we know that, like, our government is not going to pay us to stay home and actually take care of this correctly the way the rest of the world is. Yeah. I mean, that's – I just, like, I really want people to remember, no matter who won this election, your government decided that your life was worth less than a few dollars. And that is something people should be thinking about every single fucking day. That's the fucking scary thing is they're not thinking about it. I am not the most observational person in the world. I'm not the most smart person in the world. Like, I am, I feel like I'm okay, but, like, if I was smarter and more observant, then, like, I wouldn't have ended up in, like, most of the fucking crazy shit that I've ended up in in my life. And if even I, a colossal fuck up who has been <laughs> in, who went to a war, like without wanting to, like just fuck it, like it just was like trying to get fucking by. Like if even I can see this shit, I'm like, why can't other people see it? I don't get it. Yeah, I don't know. This is, this is maybe off topic and something we'll end up cutting out. One thing I thought was kind of funny that just occurred to me yesterday was, um, the same people who spent four years wanting to believe that 
Donald Trump is a Russian spy instead of believing, I don't know, all of the systematic Occam razor explanations for why Donald Trump became president or working on electoral college reform are now upset that a whole other bunch of people in this country don't think that this was a legitimate election. I'm like, well, you kind of reap what you sow there. We've created this politics that are so divorced from people's material conditions that it's just basically like pick whatever conspiracy theory you like and just tunnel into that and that can entertain you to death. If you don't need a conspiracy, just look at what's the fuck happening. Like in front of your face. Like it's, it's like not it couldn't a be more obvious. Exactly. They're not even trying to hide it. We're not being deceived. We're just stupid enough to not react to what's right the fuck in front of us. I know. Or we just don't feel like we have the power to change it. But we do. It's not an easy task, but like it's actually not as hard as we think it is. Honestly, like, if more people just paid attention and stopped acting like it's the people who are, who are, you know, being, like, the least competently evil. Right. <laughs> they can't even know which four seasons they're going to announce their little... <laughs> yeah. That's why I'm kind of laughing at the like yeah i'm not sure if this is a coup it's pretty half-assed if it was dick cheney in charge of this i'd be way more concerned right and like fucking it's probably dick cheney in charge of this let's be real dick cheney yeah, has probably been be. doing all the things like hey have you noticed we haven't heard him in the news lately he's not dead he's just pulling strings like dick cheney is is fucking evil and I would not be surprised to find out that he was behind Trump's entire presidency. They just don't like Trump because he's like says the quiet part out loud. But he's exactly. everything he does is totally in line with. Well, and you want to know what? Like the thing that is the thing that I'm paying attention to right now is the fact that I have had uh, there are people in my like newsfeed who have been railing against Donald Trump how horrible he is and blah 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 for for all these years and it's like okay cool biden's elected now let's talk about him let's talk about the the person who is who was elected and let's talk about all the problems with him because if all you want to do is talk about all the things wrong with donald trump you're lazy it doesn't take any kind of courage or fortitude to make fun of donald trump or call him an asshole, or call him out on any of the things he is. It takes nothing. What it actually takes fortitude to do is call out the person that everyone wants to think is is going to save you. And when I see people doing that, then I'm like, cool, then maybe I'll like give a shit about your outrage any other time. It's, again, this whole thing where people in this country are psychologically addicted to Donald Trump. And all of us are a part of that. I am psychologically addicted to being angry at people being psychologically addicted to Donald Trump. Like, I don't really have a leg to stand on myself, but it's like, I don't think people in this country are ready to let go of that psychological void. And I get part of it is he's he's not ready to let go of his time in the spotlight and he's scrambling to do everything he can and he has to appease this little cult of people that he's... Oh my God. That give him power, so he's got to make it look like he's doing something. I don't really think he really gives that many shits at the end of the day. I could be wrong, whatever. But, like, it's just so fascinating how this whole country has built our whole reality around this one human being. And we don't seem to be ready to grapple with, is that healthy? Probably not. And what do we do to maybe 
not be the kind of people that do that anymore and realize that the power and who we should be, you know, putting our magical attention to is like ourselves and Mm -hmm. the people that we should be organizing with. And Tracy was a great example of that, I think, in the work she's doing on campus. And that work is going to keep continuing under a Biden presidency because guess who also hates unions? Fucking corporate Democrats, you know? Yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So I I totally agree with you. And I think that, you know, I'm not even going to say his name anymore. He who will not be named anymore on this podcast yeah, um, well, has we'll in see. fact been, oh my God, like he has in fact been a major part of this nation's psyche for a long time. You know, like I said, to the extent that I knew who he was when I was a kid, like I was little and knew who he was. And, and it's not just him, it's the whole like illusion of wealth mentality that he's perpetuated. Like he is the United States for all intents and purposes. Like that's why he became the president and that's why he's clinging to, like he is the most America out of any of us. And that's, that's why we can't let him go. The United States has not had a chance to process the fact that it has just been gaslit for four years by this person and also let's be real for 400 years by everyone who claims that we were built on democracy when we were built on genocide and slavery i mean the bush administration gaslit us into war the obama administration put um fucking water protector protesters in dog cages yeah that occupy wall street like i saw police violence with my own fucking eyes under a democratic administration and then i feel like i get gaslit by liberals who try to tell me somehow that that didn't matter that like i didn't see what i thought i saw (laughs) i mean fuck i was beating the shit out of at the liberty bell so fuck their gaslighting under obama like (laughs) so this is the thing is like I feel like the work that the work that Tracy's doing, um, the work that you know all of our guests have been doing, they've all been doing it for years, um, and not under just this administration, but for the the uh, eight years of Obama's presidency that happened before that, people were just like, "Oh, Obama's just like he he's doing his best. He's just he's doing his best." That was what we heard all the time. He's doing his best, and you know at least at least for the last four years, we haven't had that bullshit shoved down our throats. But, like, the the work is going to keep going on, and um, this nation has definitely, like, I feel like we, we don't even realize the extent of our, the gaslighting that we've undergone, and the hardest part is, like, just trying to talk to people about it who've never even considered it. Yeah, because they haven't had to. And like, I, I have some, like, I try to have some empathy for that. And I know it's, it's stages in the process of waking up and I don't want to present like I'm some perfectly woken up person and I'm not using woke in like the sense that it's kind of been co-opted by using woke, like, like legitimately awake on like a spiritual and knowledge level. Um, yeah. And also, you know, that sort of level of reality where you're like, okay, on a certain level, this is a game, and I am a co-creator in this game. So what can I do um, as a (laughs) co-creator to, you know, help push reality in a certain direction 
that sounded ridiculous. But, um, you know what I mean? I like, mean, I know what you mean. If you want to rephrase it, you can, because I like that, where you're going with it. So, like, I think one level of waking up is sort of that spiritual level where you realize, I think Ram Dass talks about this really well, but there's, like, multiple levels to the game. There's, like, your physical self that's on this plane and the body and ego you incarnated into and there's like your bigger self that's who you really are and that bigger self knows that on a certain level this is a game you're playing on this plane and you chose to be here so how can you use that power that comes from your higher self to affect what happens on this plane that does make sense because honestly like it's I understand why people aren't willing to see life that way because we get so invested in our egos and who we believe ourselves to be and why, like, there has to be a cosmic reason why we are here. There has to be a purpose and a specific thing that we are all here to do. And it's like, okay, sure. Like, we can make that purpose. We can all be here to do a specific thing. Or we all could, like, go fucking jump off a bridge, you know? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Like, we don't necessarily need to um, have a cosmic reason, but, you know, we are, we're given this, this narrative since we're born that we're special, we're unique, we need to do a thing, we don't know what the thing is. <laughs> we'll figure it out if we're lucky. I don't know. But, like, I wish that someone had just told me at some point early on in life, like, just so you know, we're all just here, like, walking around, bumping into things, figuring it out as we go along. Like, maybe there's some amazing reason and purpose that your life will serve. Maybe not. Either way, all good. You know, don't be an asshole. Right. Don't be a dick if you are. Like, I fucking wrote a song called Try Not to Be a Dick because that was basically the thing that I kept coming back to with myself, like to myself. Right. Just try. Just try. It'll be okay. (laughs) Or not. (laughs) Yeah. There's this songwriter I love, Jason Molina, and he has this great line that I'm probably going to butcher. It's, um... The real truth about it is no one gets it right. The real truth about it is we're all supposed to try. That is one of my favorite lines of his. Um, But yeah, I was just thinking about, you know, the whole idea of ego is like when you're actually building solidarity. And I think it was interesting hearing Tracy talk about some of the challenges with academia where it is attached to ego because of, you know, the sort of class system the very medieval, as she put it, class system that we have in academia where you have tenured faculty, then you have, you know, non-tenured faculty, you have staff, you have grad students and adjunct, you know, you have all these people with varying degrees of power and influence. And then you have, you know, the staff that are paid minimum wage, many of whom are here, um, you know, they're immigrants and they're afraid for their safety beyond just, you know, their job security. Um, that how it makes it all challenging and those people with a little more power and privilege it isn't about letting go of our ego to try to build solidarity because those are the projects that are actually going to matter more than all this noise happening with politics at the top where it's just almost like a reality tv show at this point it's like entertainment and it's always been I think that's what it is is like the the current administration has exposed 
U.S. politics for the reality TV show they are. Um, I mean, literally, been, reality TV show host as the president. <laughs> we literally have a reality TV show host as the president. This nation is a reality TV show. Everyone thinks they are the star of their own reality TV show. I've been that person, too. Oh, I mean, yeah, hell, me too. Like, we all have. And it's it's so fascinating because, like, that's kind of... The rest of the world is looking at us like, what the actual fuck, though? You know, because, like, they've got their own brand of, you know, sort of evil and exploitation. You know, obviously ours came from somewhere. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> the apple doesn't fall far from the tree here, you know. Um, but the thing that we can't do in this country is act like grown-ups. And that I mean I'm kind of okay with that at a certain to a certain extent because like why should we? Who really ever grows up? It's all bullshit anyway. Like all these people are putting on this show of civility and being horrible to each other. At least we're like the gloves are off in the US. You know, right. it's just like woo everyone's inner child is out to play. Here <laughs> yeah. In this country. For better or for worse. For better or worse, like everyone's inner terrorist is also out to play because that's what the inner child has that part, right? Right, totally. (laughs) I'm going to just knock shit off this table and scream because I didn't get what I wanted and... The United States is the tantruming toddler of the world. Like, (laughs) it's not like the rest of the world's morals are better. It's just they've learned how to keep their shit together a little bit better. And, uh, you know, I don't know, like I've... I've been watching or trying to listen to the the news on Al Jazeera um, more recently because I studied Arabic years ago now and I'm trying to get it back. And, you know, just listening to the way, like, the tones that they all use <laughs> to talk about our politics, it's, you know, and I'm, my vocabulary is still coming back, so I'm not grasping all of the intricacies particularly, but they're, it's like, this, the faces are just like, what? <laughs> and what's got to suck for the rest of the world, too, is, like, we are the ones holding a gun to their head. And we really are. And exploiting them, and we, and they're just like, these are the people like these motherfuckers. Right. There's a reason why Al Jazeera is talking about American politics. And it's because we impact them. So like in the we impact the Middle East every single day, every minute of every day, our politics impacts the Middle East. And like people in the United States don't get that. That there is there's no other country whose politics we learn because they're constantly attacking us. Yeah, like, it's that imperial privilege. <laughs> Imperial privilege. It's like, it's a real thing. We don't even get it. We're starting to get it now. We won't fully get it until another major power has actually invaded and occupied. Yeah. I mean, if China wanted to impose economic sanctions on us, like, imagine what that would do. Like, they, people don't even have to come in and invade with brute force. They don't need to. But they, the thing is that they all would they probably love to every right to like i i feel like they're all like sort of like fighting it out like drawing straws or i don't know no because that's for a negative thing they're all like like battling it out to see who gets to invade the united states right or they're just (laughs) sitting there popping popcorn i mean like we just gotta wait a little longer just a little longer joe biden is now the commander-in-chief or is about to be and, and and kamala harris 
who I would be absolutely terrified with either of them as my commander in chief. A cop and a, not just a climate change denying senile racist, but a climate change denying senile racist who actively, actively encouraged and cheered for the beginning of the Iraq war. That's who the commander in chief is now. <laughs> That's the another thing that liberals like to gaslight is that we were all talking about Joe Biden's mental health early in the primaries. I don't know anybody who was on Team Biden at the beginning. And I get consolidating behind him because we want to get rid of Trump. I'm not faulting anyone for that. But you don't get to all of a sudden pretend that he does not have serious signs of mental decline. And we can talk about that without being shitty about it. But, you know, there is a certain irony to you finally get what you want and you're not going to actually be able to remember it. And... I can't take credit for wow. that. That is, um, wow, that's, that's from Chapo Trap House. I can't take credit for that. Wow. But I was like, that is a fucking, I enjoyed that observation. <laughs> I think it was Matt Christman that said that. I can't remember. So, wow. but yeah, it was good. I know. I was like, that was good. <laughs> I was like, damn. So shout out to, like, to the boys. The thing is, they're all battling to be um, the captain of a sinking ship. And the rest of the world sees it uh, very clearly. It's very clear. It's very obvious. Um, and we in this country are in such denial about it. It's, it's like when, I, I don't know. It, it's like when we, start, when we started, you know, talking shit about Joe Biden after he got the nomination and the liberals were like don't say those things because it's circular firing squad it's blah, republican blah, blah. talking it's points like, it's Even republican like, talking points like i'll go search your no. facebook profile and take some screenshots of the exact talking points you were making yeah even if there well, wasn't it, someone who supported bernie like the people that supported other candidates made those same points about joe biden <laughs> right so. it's like if i don't say it that doesn't mean that either it's not true or nobody finds out about it like me saying it is dealing with reality. Like, you don't, like, go outside in a thunderstorm and be like, it's not raining. Like, you it's you bring an umbrella. You're like, okay, it's raining. What do I need? You know? It's, it's about being prepared. And if we can't look completely clearly at the people in front of us and see them for who they are on a f high national level, you know, and we definitely need to be able to do that on a local level. And we need to be able to do that on a personal and an internal level, too. Like, look at ourselves for who we are and acknowledge the shitty things so that we can work on them. Like, it's basic human education and, and development. And for some reason, we stop acting like it's a thing once it gets into the government. Like, no, that's when it matters the most. <laughs> yeah, and acknowledging the ways we give our power away, like... This is the one thing that does make me hopeful, and Tracy mentioned this, was the next generation of kids coming up, I think, are more interested in building something outside the system. Whereas I think even us as older millennials and even some of the younger millennials, it's all about trying to push back against the system. But I think the and I don't want to overgeneralize or pretend that my the students I interact with are representative of everybody of that age, but like there definitely is a desire to do something else. And I really think that is going to be the answer is we have to build something outside 
of the two-party system, whether it's a third party, when it comes to our politics, we have to build something outside of the economic system. Like, And that seems like a tall order, but I think that's really the only way is doing that on a you know, building that solidarity, building, like, connecting those global movements that are doing that, like, I don't really know how that looks exactly, but I, I think that that's far more powerful than us constantly sitting there, like, and believe, I do it too all the time, and feeling just like we're about to be buried by something, instead of stepping into our own power and trying to create something to at least protect us from the, uh, yeah, the thing is that people are protecting each other, the, the thing is, the reason why we all are freaking out right now is because the empire is freaking out. Mm. The empire is freaking out and it's making us all freak out with it because it's dying and it's acting like we need to die with it. And we don't, nope. you know, we as people can take care of each other. Like if Washington, D.C. tomorrow didn't exist, if we all woke up and did not ever know that it was a thing, we would go about our business doing the things that we need to do and making it work because that's what we do. That's how we have done as humans for millennia. Yeah. I guess, like, I have hope in the idea that the next evolution is people getting that. Yeah, You know, people too. being like, we have been caught in this abusive relationship with politics and we need to stop and get back to our relationships with each other Unfortunately, politics reveal people's um, prejudices that are going to exist either way, but those prejudices are going to manifest in some other way and you deal with them when they come up. And often, like, they don't exist if you don't create a structure where people have to be divided against one another based on, you know, some kind of esoteric detail or on some kind of physical detail. Right, or whatever you need to, like, divide people to create those power structures to enforce. If we, if we were to be able to take a step back from everything we think and just like step into the shoes of like somebody who has never heard of systems of government and like you just walk around, you feed yourself, you, you know, it's like we are going to have all these these urges and obviously like our current systems grew out of that. But like I also feel like just like you can get out of an abusive relationship, like we can get out of our abusive relationship with this like toxic way of thinking that makes us prioritize like acquisition of wealth and power as this like pinnacle of success we can be like, oh, that's basically like that kid playing with all their toys in the corner who won't let anyone else play with their toys. And meanwhile, like all the other kids are over here, like having a really great time with the one remaining toy, you know? <laughs> well, yeah. And you can even just experiment with trying on that lens. Like it doesn't take any money or any effort to just be like today, even if it's for like an hour, I'm going to try to think that that's the world I live in and see what comes up. Because I think like, looking at those metacognitive processes and how we think about things is how we start finding those solutions mm -hmm. when we start literally thinking differently. But that's a whole rabbit hole and I'm... Yeah. That's for another time. Another time. time. <laughs> we'll explore that another time. And so the river yells as it's sinking The flames on the back burn yellow Oh,
captain escapes in his white gloves and top coat. Yeah, all of us see him slip into the night. the music.